for Thursday, October 15th, 2020. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE, answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, conspiracy theories about COVID-19 can spread just as easily as the coronavirus, creating an epidemic of bad information. Just as You know, in many countries, we're experiencing a second wave of the pandemic. I think we're probably also going to see a second and maybe third wave of the infodemic. Sarah Avanja from the Cornell Alliance for Science joins me to discuss her recent study looking at some of the drivers of the infodemic. That's next. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E. The COVID-19 pandemic has spawned an infodemic of conspiracy theories. And like with the coronavirus, there are super spreaders of misinformation. So says a report from the Cornell University Alliance for Science, authored by Sarah Avanja. She's with me now to discuss some of the people and the ideas driving the infodemic. Sarah, thanks for talking with me. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're here to talk today about this report that you have put together, looking at the drivers of the infodemic. Now, this is a term that's been used by folks like the head of the World Health Organization, among others, to discuss kind of the proliferation of bad information about the pandemic that has spread quickly over the course of the last many months. Just to start, walk me through the inspiration for this report. Why did you and your colleagues want to look at this issue? Thanks. So the Alliance for Science is the initiative that I lead here at Cornell University. And we're a global communications initiative that looks at misinformation and disinformation across a range of science issues. We look at uh, issues like vaccines, uh, climate change, and other issues of science that have really suffered from misinformation. And so um, in March, we all found ourselves working under new normals. And we thought, let's take the tools that we've been using to look at misinformation and issues like biotech or vaccines 
and shift to look at the landscape of the COVID-19 infodemic. And we'll talk a little bit in a moment about how you did that work, but I think let's start with some of the findings. That's the real juicy stuff. So what were your major findings? So our major finding was that the vast majority of misinformation around COVID-19 was really associated with this subtopic that we call in the paper miracle cures. And miracle cures would include misinformation around the use of anti-malarials like hydroxychloroquine. It would include UV, and it would also include the use of disinfectants as a treatment for COVID-19. And so the conspiracy theories or misinformation around miracle cures was the largest sort of category of misinformation. But the interesting finding was that 38% of the COVID misinformation was also in association with the name of the President of the United States. And certainly the largest spike of coverage of COVID-related misinformation was in association with a press conference on April 24th, where the President of the United States suggests that the use or injecting disinfectant can be an effective treatment for COVID-19. And so that's Definitely the largest sort of misinformation spike in the total misinformation landscape between January and May when we did the study. There, I think you're noting an interesting convergence because what you're really tracking are kind of mentions of specific phrases, terminology together. There's a great example. We have this topic that was shared frequently and this individual with a very big platform. So was that a convergence that maybe you expected to find? I think when we set out to do this study, as consumers of both social and traditional media, of course, this study focuses on traditional media, but as consumers of media, we had all sort of heard um, various conspiracy theories that sort of kind of came and went over the course of the period between January and May. Theories about bat soup, about 5G, um, a number of different conspiracy theories related to COVID-19, its origins, et cetera. And so I think we we expected to see more of a range of conspiracy theories playing a bigger role across the whole misinformation landscape. And what we found was that most of those really had very limited visibility and reach. They were quick media moments and that this category of miracle cures dominated the misinformation landscape. So the misinformation around miracle cures was more than all of those other 10 subtopics of conspiracy theories put together. And then, of course, the surprising um, finding is that the president of the United States becomes sort of um, associated with the misinformation around those miracle cures. I want to step back here and talk a little bit about your methods here. I think with any study, this one in particular, it's really important to talk about that. I mean, walk me through how y'all actually did this. What sources were you looking at? How big was your sample size? How did you comb through all that information? So we did this study in collaboration with two colleagues at Prime Research, um, now Cision, And we were able to use the Cision Media's Next Generation Communications Cloud platform, which aggregates content from 7 million plus sources from around the world. And so that database was used to query um, English language search string for misinformation topics that were present in the context of COVID-19. 
So the study evaluated 38 million pieces of English language traditional media content and online news uh, sources that essentially covered the COVID-19 topic. And within that set of 30 million pieces of media, we found that 1.1 million pieces had some relationship with misinformation. And that's about 3% of the total media set. So 38 million pieces of media covering COVID-19, 3% of that roughly has some relationship with misinformation. These days, it's not just traditional media that is spreading ideas. So did y'all have a thought to look at purely social media content? And, and maybe how do you think about the two relating to each other? Because I don't know, I, I think of my my social channels are maybe more informed by things that are shared on Facebook and social media versus someone engaging with a, with a piece from the New York Times. There have been a lot of studies that have looked at misinformation and it's spread on social media. And I think as a result, there is sort of this underlying assumption that misinformation is assumed to be a social media phenomenon. And so I think it's really interesting that this study shows that traditional media is also a really important source of the amplification of misinformation and really because and tightly linked to that saturation and extensive coverage of a small number of very prominent people. Use that term misinformation. Now, now this is a very specific term they all outline in this work. You, you kind of set that against disinformation. Make that distinction for me. What is, what is the difference between the two? So I think the difference is, you know, both misinformation and disinformation do center on the dissemination of false information. But misinformation is shared without malice, if you will, while disinformation is spread with the intent to deceive. In this study, we really used the term misinformation, but it's clear that some of those 11 main um, conspiracy theory topics that emerged do also include elements of disinformation, as they do appear to have been shared intentionally, you know, primarily to probably advance political agendas, and, and others are sort of a combination of misinformation and disinformation. There isn't always a clear line. Paint the picture for me of kind of the chain of events where we have a traditional media outlet who say they're NPR, they report a story, maybe it's a story, you know, fact-checking, something the president has said about, say, a miracle cure. How does that end up feeding into this misinformation infodemic that we're talking about here? What's, what's the actual chain of events? Well, one of the major categories that we pulled out in this study is a fact-checking category. So we found that about 16% of the you know, misinformation coverage around COVID-19 was actually fact-checking, which is a good thing. Um, so that's the media doing their job. And we'd love to see that number increase. Um, but certainly, we were able to sort of detect using uh, certain indicators of fact-checking, like the word conspiracy theory, for example, or the word misinformation, for example. Those are all sort of triggers that allow the system to sort of discern whether something is fact-checking or not. That is a piece of traditional, we can agree, quote-unquote, good journalism. How does that then fuel misinformation? The important role that media have to play here is to, you know, one, really, you know, focus on covering 
bona fide experts as sources. So really using, you know, good science-based sources in, in coverage, but also um, being really careful about giving too much voice to a few non-experts who happen to have very large platforms. And this certainly isn't a, a phenomenon that's unique to the United States or to um, U.S. media. Our study focused on English language media but this is a problem globally. And I think, you know, we've seen in, in Brazil and, and other places how the number of COVID-19 cases go up when leaders or social influencers with big platforms don't use science to inform their public service messages, if you will, or um, certainly to inform policy. It seems like what you're getting at here with this study is this real fundamental tension that we're seeing more and more of, I think, with our around-the-clock news appetite. You know, I'm thinking about outlets live streaming or running unmediated press conferences from the White House Coronavirus Task Force, where you have, in, in your words, you know, there are scientists there, but we have political leaders who are not medical scientists with this large platform. I mean, this is the problem that y'all are describing what is the solution? How how can outlets cover these very newsworthy events while making sure that they're not amplifying messages that are not factually correct? Yeah, I mean, it is a big challenge. I mean, certainly even in trying to tackle and counter misinformation and do that fact checking, often we're repeating the bad information in correcting it, right? So it is a delicate dance for the media. But again, you know, really being cautious about false balance, using bona fide experts as sources, and you know, not giving too much voice to non-experts with large platforms is really important. You know, I'm also really encouraged by some of the actions that the social media platforms are taking to essentially either pull down misinformation uh, or disinformation, if you will, or to essentially put patches up that essentially warn the, the media consumer that this may be misinformation or disinformation, and you can read more to, to find out more. So I think that, you know, we have seen in the, in the last week or so some real actions being taken by social media platforms to try to uh, mitigate the spread of misinformation and the effects of this infodemic. It seems like what your paper is calling for here is maybe more mediation, right? Less unmediated uh, coverage of, you know, people spreading misinformation. But how do we account for the fact that even traditional media organizations can have very different biases and very different approaches to coverage? Yeah, I mean, I think that's just one of many, you know, sad state of affairs examples that we have in terms of the polarization that we see in this country, Um even media and the perspectives offered on media are, are very polarized. And we um, subscribe, of course, we self-select and subscribe to channels based on our beliefs. And we subscribe to those channels that reinforce our beliefs. And so it really is ever more increasingly difficult to be inspired to change our minds or to be inspired to rethink our views um, based on new information. And I think it's such a critical time to try to understand how people who are different than ourselves look at the world. And so I think, you know, exposing ourselves to different types, forms and channels of media is, is so much more important than ever before. 
I think there's another way that we can look at these results. If, if you looked at, you know, this, this sample size of millions and millions of pieces of information shared, truly a relatively small percentage was misinformation. So is there some way that we could look at these results as positive, that most of what's being shared out there from these traditional media outlets is actually doesn't meet the criteria of being misinformation? It's a really great way to look at the glass uh, half full, right? So as you say, we looked at 38 million pieces of English language traditional media um, covering the COVID-19 pandemic, and just under 3% of it was misinformation. So that is a, you know, a small amount of, of the coverage. Is that somewhat encouraging? <laughs> I think it is encouraging. I mean, you know, that we have Less than 3% as misinformation is encouraging. The vast majority of coverage of COVID-19, roughly 97%, wasn't misinformation in traditional media. That's a good thing. And within the misinformation that was um, out there uh, around COVID-19, 16% of that, or you know, almost uh, a fifth of that was fact-checking by the media. And so that's another good thing, another good portion of that total misinformation and total COVID-19 information landscape. So this is work that, that you and your colleagues do not only with regards to the pandemic, you, you do this with other kinds of public understanding of science. If we want to think about that issue in general, the, the, the public's faith and, uh, you know, entrusting science they hear from, you know, people with loud voices, um, maybe in trusting science that they hear from the media, what is really at stake, whether in this pandemic or in a larger sense, if people can't trust what they're hearing? So, uh, you know, interestingly, Pew just put out another um, study that looks at public trust in scientists and in science. And, you know, once again, their data do reveal, and again, these are data that were collected before the pandemic. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what impact the pandemic has on public trust in scientists. But up until the pandemic, people still trust, have a high level of trust in scientists. They do believe that scientists are acting in their best interest and are doing the right thing. And so I think that just, again, underscores the importance of the media using scientists as good sources because the public does trust scientists. You know, one of the important take-home messages for me from this study was, you know, really the role that all of us can play in preventing a second infodemic. I think, you know, we're not even at a point where, you know, we're as families making decisions about you know, whether or not to take a, a vaccine for COVID-19. And I look forward to the day when we have a safe and effective vaccine to, to move us beyond this pandemic. But I think that just as, you know, in many countries, we're experiencing a second wave of the pandemic, I think we're probably also going to see a second and maybe third wave of the infodemic. So I think it's really important for all of us to sort of take on uh, what we can do to prevent that second infodemic, especially as we approach a time when we can access a safe and effective vaccine. Sarah Avanja is with the Cornell University Alliance for Science. Did You Wash Your Hands? is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. WABE's managing editor is Alex Helmick. Scott Wolfel is chief content officer. 
You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app, where you can also leave us a rating and a review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org slash coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. W-A-B-E.